Well, welcome back to Carmelite Conversations on Radio Maria, Christian Voice in Your Home. Francis and I are very happy to be able to bring you a message that we talked about, I believe, Francis, last week that we were going to introduce. It is, first of all, most importantly, a Advent message because we are in the season of Advent now for us anyway, as we're doing this program live. We are um, uh, into the second week of Advent right? and uh, very excited about introducing a connection to Advent and devotion to the Sacred Heart, which, if you're not familiar, is very much a Carmelite uh, devotion. We have covered the life of a well-known Carmelite. I won't uh, mention her name now, but we will as we begin the program, um, who herself both had a great devotion uh, to the Sacred Heart, and this was imparted to her by our Lord, much like uh, St. Mary Alacoque, who, of course, uh, most often is thought of as the one who brought the devotion of the Sacred Heart back to the church, although she wasn't even the first. Um, but, but we won't get into that history right now. But um, anyway, a connection between the Sacred Heart and Advent is our uh, conversation theme for the day, and we're looking forward to bringing and sharing that with you. And Francis, I'm looking forward to having this conversation with you. How are you? I'm doing great. And, you know, today is a special day for the Carmelites because it is the um, memorial of Blessed Bartholomew Fonti. He was of the Ocarm, the ancient observance, and that's today, December 5th. And then coming up December 11th, um, St. Maria Maravallis of Jesus, um, an, a discussed Carmelite nun. Don't forget her um, on the 11th. And then next week, of course, we're today actually starts the novena for St. John of the Cross, you know, our father in the discussed Carmelites, um, his feast day being December 14th. So I just want to bring that up because, uh, you know, this is a potent time for Carmelites um, in that sense that we have special intercessor feast days. You know, you mentioned uh, St. Maria. Maravallis to me um, in a conversation we had off air, and I confused her with, uh, I believe it was uh, Sister Joseph Mendez, who had written a book similar in theme to the one that um, Sister Maravallis had written, St. Maravallis had written. Um, Interestingly, I do recall when I was in Spain, there were a group of people who went to visit her monastery, her Carmel, where I think she's in turn, if I'm not mistaken, I think she's there. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't happen to go that day. I forget what I was doing, to be honest with you. But I do remember that conversation, and that's why her name stuck in my mind, although uh-huh. I confused it with another text. Well, I'm looking forward to doing some programs on her, so um, we'll we'll see when we can get that together. <laughs> but anyway, today we have a great conversation about the Sacred Heart of Jesus and the Advent season, which leads us into Christmas. So uh, what a beautiful time to be thinking about his most sacred heart. Well, why don't you begin us uh, or, or help us begin our conversation today, Francis, by leading us in prayer, which I know you've uh, picked out having something to do with our theme for the day. <laughs> well, this prayer comes from St. Teresa Margaret Reddy of the Sacred Heart. She is the... Um, the little flower of Florence. Her body is incorrupt in Florence. She is a discast Carmelite nun. And this is um, like the most famous prayer of hers. Um, it's a long one, but I, I think it really gives you a sense of, of who she is by knowing her prayer life. Um, this is her own words. So let us get recollected and let us pray in union with her to our Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. 
My God, I desire nothing save to become your perfect image. And yours was a hidden life of humiliation, love, and sacrifice. So also I wish mine to be. I desire to enclose myself henceforth within your most loving heart as in a desert, so that I may live in you and with you and for you this hidden life of love and sacrifice. Oh, my Lord, you know my great desire to become a victim of your sacred heart, wholly consumed by the fire of your holy love. May your heart be the altar upon which my holocaust will be made, and you be the priest who will consume this victim by the flames of your burning love. But how confused I am, my God, when I see what a worthless victim I am. And how unfitting is this sacrifice I ask you to accept. Yet I am confident that all will be accomplished by the fire of divine love. My God, how well you know my great need of your help. I trust in your infinite mercy, and I shall always do so, regardless of the spiritual state in which I find myself. Always and everywhere, I shall endeavor to recognize your will in all things, even though my eyes see only contradiction and uncertainty. I know that I cannot depend upon myself, and so I shall trust completely in you. Nothing will separate me from the love of Christ, for in you, O Lord, I have hoped. I will never be confounded. In all things I shall be content, knowing that the route I travel leads to Calvary. The thornier the path, the heavier the cross, the more consoled I will be, because I desire to love you with a suffering love, a selfless love, an active love, with a firm, undivided, persevering love. I have promised you many things, but in no wise do I depend upon my own indolent spirit. You have enlightened me as to what I must do. Now help me to execute it. All this I hope of your infinite mercy. I desire to love you with a patient love, a love dead to self, that is, a love which completely abandons me to you, an active love, to sum it all up, a solid love with no division within itself and which will stand regardless of what may occur. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Well, thank you, Francis. I appreciate that. As I said, we are going to um, focus on Advent. It's important that we do that in the Advent season, but also at the same time, we want to spend some time talking about uh, the importance of our devotion to the Sacred Heart. And the reason I, I say um, that, that is important is because it links both with the um, theme that we have for Advent and also for us as Carmelites, it is important to understand and to have a way of fulfilling what we're going to reintroduce here in just a moment in our conversation, and that is our adopting, um, tra being transformed, if you will, into the very humanity of Christ. What is the lever, if you will? What's the means for doing that? And I'm going to be so bold as to say, Francis, you know, many of us, and we've talked about all these devotions, uh, many of us might say, well, it's through the rosary that we do that, or maybe it's through the cross of Christ, or maybe it's through uh, any one of a number of devotions that we might pick. Well, I want to advocate today the idea that the way that we most immediately and perhaps most uh, comprehensively 
can come to enter into and understand this adoption of the humanity of Christ is actually through his sacred heart. And as we talk about the union of two natures in Christ, his divine and his human, and we, of course, have um, a spiritual nature and a human nature, I think the link between those is really the heart. And we'll talk about that both in the context of the human heart as well as in the context of Christ's sacred heart. Um, So I'm setting the table for our conversation, but let's go back a little bit. And Francis, if you wouldn't mind, I'd like to read uh, from this uh, brief reflection from St. Elizabeth of the Trinity's prayer to the Trinity. Of course, we just celebrated her canonization in early November. And uh, I'm sorry, her feast day in early November, her canonization actually in October. Um, and we've focused a lot on her prayer, but we're going to use it here just to sort of build on this theme of the adoption of Christ's humanity. Oh, consuming fire, spirit of love, descend within me and reproduce in me, as it were, an incarnation of the word, that I may be to him another humanity wherein he renews his mystery. Enter my soul as a door as restorer, as savior. So those, by the way, are are um, separate installments, if you will, in her prayer. They're not together. They're they're um, in separate places in the prayer. And I can't advocate enough um, for our listeners that they get a hold of a copy of uh, Saint Elizabeth of the Trinity's prayer to the Trinity and read that every day. It wouldn't take you more than a few moments. I yeah. would advocate praying it every day. Yes, it's it's, it's potent. It's potent. You can draw a great deal of fruit from it. But I, in my looking over um, uh, some texts that we had done before Francis and I and some conversations, I began to see this sort of theme running through these two sisters, sister. Uh, Margaret, um, St. Margaret, uh, Teresa Margaret, uh, Teresa Margaret sorry, mm-hmm. uh, of the Sacred Heart, that was her full name, and Sister Elizabeth of the Trinity. I began to see this theme running through, and so I wanted to try to capture that. Now, we have to understand that what Elizabeth is really asking here is that the Holy Spirit would come into her soul. That's this portion of the prayer which she says, consuming fire. That's the Spirit, of course, the Holy Spirit. And we should begin to look at this um, in the context of the incarnation of the word within the human person. That's what Elizabeth is begging for, praying for here. Yeah, remember the words, uh, reproduce in me as it were an incarnation of the word. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And then um, this takes us, of course, ideally to that theme of Advent where we know, and we've, we pray this in um, the rosary, when we pray the rosary, the first joyful mystery, of course, refers to our Blessed Mother's encounter uh, with the angel Gabriel. And we read from uh, Luke one thirty-five. And the angel said to her in reply, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And so here in Luke, we see uh, Mary's preparation for the incarnation of her son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Elizabeth is praying for the exact same thing. She's praying for an incarnation, descend within and produce an incarnation of the word. 
First, let's look at that word incarnation. It's important that we understand what is meant by that. And let's do so by looking at it in the context of Mary, who was the first one uh, who experienced the incarnation of Christ through her own body. And Elizabeth's own reflection on Mary's experience of this. And this is found in uh, St. Elizabeth of the Trinity's writing entitled, I Have Found God. It's actually on the 10th day and uh, the 40th paragraph of that um, retreat that she was on in the notes. Of course, much of Elizabeth's writing uh, was done in the latter part of her life. In fact, in the last four or five months of her life, uh, very powerful writings in and of themselves outside the prayer. But there's something she says here about the Blessed Mother as it relates to both this incarnation, our preparation for Advent, but most especially our preparation as interior souls. And no doubt this comes as a result of her deep prayer over the mystery of um, this Annunciation. Elizabeth said, and this is St. Elizabeth of the Trinity, okay, not um, the Elizabeth in the story um, with Mary um, in the Incarnation. She said, It seems to me the attitude of the Virgin during the months that elapsed between the Annunciation and the Nativity, which we know is the Incarnation, is the model for interior souls, those whom God has chosen to live within in the depths of the bottomless abyss. Now, so what we have here is Elizabeth saying from the moment of the Annunciation, which no doubt had to have caused a great deal of disruption in Mary's life, we know that, uh, some confusion on her part, uh, but also uh, the beginning of the preparation, right? Nine months hence, of course, the Nativity, the Incarnation, and what Elizabeth's telling us here is this is what an interior soul looks like. Regardless of what's going on on the exterior, regardless of the circumstances of our life, the confusion that even God himself will introduce here in the context of a, of a visiting angel, um, we must live in the deep interior. This is our preparation for Advent. If you want to experience it, we had a conversation about this a few years ago, Francis. If you want to experience the um, true meaning of Christmas, as they say, or the uh, fullest extent of the season of Advent, we must not prepare by getting packages and gifts and food and all the rest of it. Fine, if you want to do that, it's necessary for family gatherings. But prepare interiorly, the way our Blessed Mother did. And so let's look a little more closely at this doctrine of incarnation. Um, in Christian theology, the doctrine of incarnation, of course, holds that Jesus, the preexistent divine logos, the word, uh, the second um, member of the Trinity, God, the son of the father, takes on a human body. He takes on a human nature. He was, as we say, made flesh and conceived within the womb of Mary. Uh, Mary, of course, is known by many names, Theotokos, God-bearer, uh, Mater Dei, which is Mother of God. But essentially, they all amount to the same thing. She is the one who gives flesh to um, the divine Son of our God in the form of Jesus Christ. The doctrine of the Incarnation, of course, entails Jesus Christ becoming fully human while at the same time being fully divine. And the joining of his two natures is what we know as the hypostatic union. Now, I don't want to get into the theology. This is about prayer and how we bring an understanding of this into our personal lives. 
But this is exactly what Elizabeth is asking the Holy Spirit to do in her. He's asking the Holy Spirit would incarnate Christ in her person. In other words, give extension to his humanity. But what is this other humanity that she's asking for? What is it that she really wants done with her? Well, it's nothing other, as I said, than an extension of Christ's life lived out through us individually, the members of his mystical body. This teaching, of course, is found um, in Scripture first, and we always go to Scripture first, but it's also elaborated on in a encyclical, an encyclical by Pope Pius XII, uh, simply titled On the Mystical Body of Christ. But first, let's turn to St. Paul in Ephesians 4, 15 through 16. And here, and by the way, I could have cited many, as could Francis, we could have cited many references to the body in Scripture, but we took this one. It's the most fitting, I think. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Now, we could give a a, a brief theology on the mystical body. I I won't, but I will offer this from, again, uh, the encyclical by Pope Pius XII entitled On the Mystical Body of Christ, wherein he says... If we would define and describe this true Church of Jesus Christ, which is the one holy Catholic, apostolic, and Roman Church, we shall find nothing more noble, more sublime, or more divine than the expression of the mystical body of Christ. That's all of us. An expression which springs from and is, as it were, the fair flowering of the repeated teaching of the sacred scripture and the Holy Fathers. So this continuing uh, expression of Christ's humanity in many parts, with many languages, in many sizes, in many shapes, with many gifts, constitutes the mystical body. Now I want to draw, and I'm a little bit ahead of you, Francis, in the notes, but I remembered this, actually, as we came on the air. I just want to draw briefly from the text that we are using, at least in part, for our conversation, and that's um, a text from ICS Publications entitled, God is Love. It was written by Margaret Rowe. Of course, it'll be on our website as a reference. Um, It is about the life of St. Teresa Margaret, uh, St. Teresa Margaret Reddy, or St. Teresa Margaret of the Sacred Heart, her name um, in Carmel. And, And it simply says here, the Sacred Heart devotion belongs to the doctrine of the mystical body. In other words, our devotion to the Sacred Heart is our same devotion in recognition of ourselves as members of Christ's mystical body. And you know, this wasn't always, I mean, it seems very accepted in our day right now, but that wasn't always the case. I think people totally understood about the mystical body as they're reading the scriptures, but they're not seeing the essence of the sacred heart. And they were actually in St. Teresa Margaret Reddy's time. um, She actually had a, um, a, a, the confessor for the nuns was very adamantly opposed to any devotion to the sacred heart. And yet there were others in the church that were very much for. And, and so this, uh, theology is developing in her day, um, 
and and a little before, but but it continues, and so um, we take it somewhat for granted. Uh, but this is a development where the Holy Spirit is shining the light on it, so that we can get deeper into the heart. And we should just briefly say why the reservation at that time uniquely is the same reservation that Teresa of Avila experienced in her um, encounters with the mystical and the. Um, sort of counsel that she got from some spiritual directors, not well-informed spiritual directors, unfortunately, that she should not focus on the humanity of Christ. In other words, the sacred heart represents both Christ's heart, its aspirations, its will, its its drive and motivation in, in the human context, as well as its divinity, his divinity. And so the reservation was in associating with his human nature. We should always, of course, associate with his divine nature, but there were reservations about his human nature that we wouldn't be tied to it. For Teresa, and in fairness for um, Teresa Margaret, um, distancing ourselves from the human nature of Christ uh, makes him less approachable for us. We can't sort of relate to him if we can't uh, respond to his human nature. And again, I, I don't want to go too, too far into the theology of this. It must guide us in prayer. That's the important thing. But I want to just follow up briefly from the catechism on this theme of uh, the mystical body. And I'm going to read from paragraph 790 in the catechism. Believers who respond to God's word and become members of Christ's body become intimately united with him. In that body, the life of Christ is communicated to those who believe and who, through the sacraments, are united in a hidden and real way to Christ in his passion and glorification. This is especially true of baptism, which unites us to Christ's death and resurrection, and the Eucharist, by which, really sharing in the body of the Lord, we are taken up into communion with him and with one another. So we see the theme of the mystical body running through uh, St. Paul's letters, through the papal encyclical, and uh, grounded, of course, in the catechism. Um, it's important to point out, too, that this mystic, uh, mystici corporis, or the encyclical on the mystical body of Christ, it did not receive a great deal of attention during the war years when it was written, uh, but became very influential after World War II, um, and in fact, it had um, reje- rejected two extreme views of the church. One was this rationalistic or purely sociological understanding of the church. It was just a grouping of organized people, according to which she was merely a human organization with structure and activity in the world. A visible church and its structures do exist, of course, that's true. Uh, but she is also guided divinely by the Holy Spirit. And so many people are missing this. And, you know, I think even in our election season, there was a, a, a sense of the church as just being one of these sociological groupings of yeah. people. Yeah. Rather, could be manipulated, yeah, by the way. <laughs> right. So, um, you know, this is so important for us to stand up as Catholics and pro- proclaim, yes, we are guided by the Holy Spirit. This isn't just a, 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 a collection, a of, collection people. of people. Not, it's not with just a, an organization that wields political influence and has money and all the or has same ideological thinking you know this is a very um it is a mystical it is divine it has divine um power in uh, affecting it uh leading it guiding it uh helping it to grow now conversely um 
to to counter the other extreme. The other extreme <laughs> yeah, all the extremes was, are bad, right? <laughs> yeah, th- there was at the time of the um, penning of this encyclical by Pope Pius XII an exclusively mystical understanding, which was also mistaken, because a mystical Christ in us union would defy its members of the mean that the acts of Christians are simultaneously acts of Christ. In other words, if if the church is only divine, if it's only mystical, if it's only spiritual, well, then where's the human aspect of it? Where is mm-hmm. its effect in the world? This theological concept, una mystica persona, one mystical person, refers not to an individual relation, but to the unity of Christ within the church and the unity of its members within him. Yeah, so we're not trying to deify the members and, you know, call us all mystical because we're Catholic, you know, but um, this is very important. It is in him, through him, and with him. Right. Now, I just want to quickly pick up um, the theme on um, Elizabeth of the Trinity that we're going to come back to after the break, which we're approaching here quickly. And that were, uh, I'm sorry, those are the three words that she used uh, as her aspirative prayer, her prayer of aspiration for what she wanted the Holy Spirit to do within her. And just to remind you of those before we break, she asked that he would come into her as adorer, restorer, and Savior. Something we should pray, right? A beautiful prayer for Advent. Come, Lord Jesus, enter my soul as adore, restore, and Savior. And we may think those are rather um, ambitious themes for us to be asking the Holy Spirit to um, to to come into us and affect within us. But when we come back from the break, we're going to explore those in a little more detail, put a little more context around them so that we can all understand what is meant by our becoming an extension of Christ's humanity as adore, restore, and Savior. A reminder, you're listening to Carmelite Conversations on Radio Maria, Christian voice in your home. We'll be right back. Shall come to thee, O oh, 
Welcome back to Carmelite Conversations. We are on the theme of, not to get this too complicated, Francis, but Advent. Advent as an experience of incarnation, which we ourselves should pray for, an incarnation of Christ within us. And just before we went on the break, we said, how would that manifest itself? Well, according to St. Elizabeth of the Trinity, she asks the Holy Spirit to come into her as adorer, as restorer, and as Savior. And so we right. want to unpack each of those three terms here just briefly so that we get some sense of exactly what it is that she's asking the Holy Spirit to do within her. Well, the first term, adore, this uh, evokes the prayer of adoration, of course. Um, and of course, we know St. Tr- Elizabeth of the Trinity was known uh, as the praise of glory. That was her big theme. And um, so we, I picked this scripture passage um, to help us understand this as a door. This is from Romans eight twenty six. In the same way, the Spirit, too, comes to the aid of our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit itself intercedes with inexpressible groanings. So the Spirit, we invite the Spirit to come within and pray in us as that adorer. Yeah, and we it's true. We don't know. I mean, think about how many times, and I hope it's many, by the way, that you've entered into a chapel, and hopefully the Eucharist is exposed in the monstrance, if that's something that is uh, done in, in your particular diocese or parish. And you kneel, and you get quiet, and you recollect, and you look at the monstrance, and you think to yourself, I want to adore, 
but you know we're not really sure and in all fairness there's a there's a a, a sort of a a barrier between ourselves and our Lord because of our fallen nature. This is when we have to leave ourselves over to the Holy Spirit and let the Holy Spirit act within us. You know, there's a great sentence in Elizabeth's writings that she talks about this phenomenon that God within us encounters God coming to us mm-hmm. and this phenomenon occurs. And, and St. Teresa Margaret Reddy does that too. God um, God in us and we in God. Yeah, she was very taken, in fact, by the very, it was that which got her on right. this uh, God is devotion love. to the Sacred Heart, which was the phrase, God is love. And she was completely captivated by that. God is love if God is love and we are adorers of him, we do so imperfectly unless we allow the Holy Spirit to do that work within us. So this theme, adorer, as Francis said, St. Elizabeth of the Trinity would use the term the praise of glory, something she took from St. Paul. And she recognizes in her weakness, again, she said it, which she said in her own prayer, in her weakness, the Spirit comes to us and does this adoration within us as we avail ourselves to him. Well, let me just throw in here a quote of St. Teresa Margaret Reddy on um, adoration. She said, May the sacred heart of Jesus in the blessed sacrament be praised, loved, and worshipped in all the tabernacles of the world. Ah, what continual irreverence he receives from man in his own house. In his humility, he deigns to dwell in our midst. Yet how often is he neglected and forgotten, left in empty churches, while in his turn, and pay attention to this phrase, he never grows weary of this lonely vigil. He never grows weary of this lonely vigil. Truly, love is not loved. So she's encouraging us um, to come to adoration, to um, be in vigil with the Lord in this adoration. So well, there's, a, there's a, a second theme then that she picks up on uh, with regard to this uh, prayer. Again, we're reciting St. Elizabeth of the Trinity's prayer and linking the two sisters of Carmel together, the two saints of Carmel. And that is this term, restorer. Well, um, this I, I think the Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9 through 10, um, Mark has picked the scripture passage so perfectly to fit with these. Um, and this passage from Paul says, He has made known to us the mystery of his will in accord with his favor that he set forth in him as a plan for the fullness of times to sum up all things in Christ in heaven and on earth. Yeah, now we could spend hours on this phrase, to be honest with you, this verse from Ephesians, most especially that term, summing up all things in Christ. Right. That work is done within us. And what what is meant by that, without going into much detail, though I, I hate to sort of bait the hook and then pull it back, but here's <laughs> the truth. Our entire life, the good, the bad, the things that confuse us, those that brought us great joy, are summed up. In Christ, everything will have meaning. Everything will have purpose. We look at so much of our life and we think to ourselves, well, gee, that didn't fit, you know, and I wish I could dispense with that or I wish I could do away with this or, gee, I wish I'd have had more of that. Why didn't I spend more time doing this? Trust me, my our, our listeners, everything will be summed up in Christ. Everything will give, be given purpose and meaning. Yes, even the darkness, which in and of itself we may view as having taken us away from Christ. 
Christ will, in the end, restore all of that. And we will use all of our human experience. Nothing's wasted. Um, again, a, a theme we could elaborate on at some length, but we won't in this conversation because I want to simply go back to Elizabeth's term, restorer. Christ is the great restorer. Everything in our life has meaning and purpose. And when we come to that moment when we encounter Christ, whether it may be in this life or in the next, everything will be given that meaning and purpose that it was intended uh, in our life. Even as I say, even our darkest failings and shortcomings, um, they are not wasted by Christ. They are used for our sanctification. There's another theme, though, that she picks up on. And, of course, this is the the word savior when we talked about elizabeth praying enter my soul as a door restore as savior so savior uh, of course means to be one with christ means that we in uh, will get to participate in his work of redemption because it it is the nature of love to share all of it <laughs> all of who love is he wants to share with us and draw us in to his divinity and he comes and shares in our humanity so um, as Savior, he is inviting us to participate in his work of redemption. This is why we pray for each other. He wants us to pray for each other. He doesn't want us to do it by ourselves. Um, we need the community of the whole mystical body, everyone. Um, but from Colossians, we have, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Yeah, and so here what we are talking about is the very fact that, as we said, we are part of Christ's redemptive work. And we've focused on this particular um, verse from Colossians in previous conversations, Francis, you will recall. Um, And what does it mean? We know we've said this before. What is lacking in Christ's affliction? Well, of course, nothing. Christ is, is able to save all of humanity through his passion and cross and and death and resurrection. But we participate in that work. We, as members of what? His mystical body must participate in that work with him. We bring about our own sanctification, not through our effort, but through his um, um, divine effort. And we participate in his redemptive work for the balance of the mystical body. We participate. We don't bring it about. Christ is the one who's who's done all of the work, but we participate in it. And to the degree that we do, that we intercede, that we pray, that we accept our sufferings, we literally, as a, in addition to adorers and restorers of our own experience, participate in Christ's work to redeem the world and bring other souls to Christ. Well, now let's take that, all this mystical and scriptural understanding, and let's just go to the pure physicalness of the human heart. And let's put that in relationship to to what we've been discussing here. Well, you know, our heart is a muscular organ that pumps blood to our body. And our heart is the center of our circulatory system. And this system, of course, consists of a network of blood vessels, you know, the arteries and the veins, the capillaries. And, and the they different carry, members of the mystical body. Yeah, <laughs> and they, they carry the blood to and from all areas of your body. So, so we have a transit system here, right? Um, and it's an electrical system also um, because it, it the this electrical system controls the heart and those electrical signals are what causes the contraction now i'm not 
a great um, person on all all of the body parts. Um, but I I've read about this. The electrical systems um, signal the heart to contract, um, and and when the heart contracts, the blood is pumped into the circulatory system, and then there are inlet and outlet valves in your heart chambers that make sure the blood flows in the right direction. Because if it doesn't, we're in trouble, right? Well, so let me just draw an analogy there, because this is obviously from a very scientific journal that Francis and I sourced to understand the workings of the heart. Because neither one of us, you know, we gave up heart surgery years ago, right, Francis? <laughs> <laughs> we're I just into soul surgery. We're into soul <laughs> surgery, but the heart surgery we stopped at. <laughs> But here's the analogy. So she's described, uses electrical signals. Well, what is that? It's nothing other than prayer. Our prayers are those electrical impulses that help circulate, help contract the walls and help circulate this blood. And then these inlet and outlet valves that distribute the blood flow in exactly the right direction. What is that? It's the Blessed Mother. She is the one who dispenses the graces. She directs them where they need to go. Obviously, she does so in, in part based on need. I pray for my brother, and my brother needs my uh, prayer, and he needs grace, and so the Blessed Mother directs it in such a way. So the analogy, I think, holds up, but we're trying to, again, obviously draw this connection between the human heart and the divine or the sacred heart of our Lord and our participation. Well, of course, we know the heart is vital to our health, and without it pumping uh, the blood, the blood won't go through the body, and this blood is what carries the oxygen and the nutrients, the graces, <laughs> right? We're going to go back to the spiritual, that our organs need to work well, and it also takes the carbon dioxide, a waste product, um, so that out, so that your lungs can breathe out, so um, your heart supplies your body. Um, with the right amount of blood at the rate needed to work. And, of course, if you're injured, uh, if, if a body part is injured, your um, the blood is going to help to bring the healing about here. You know, as, as I was reading all of this about the physical heart and how it works and everything, I couldn't help but thinking about the um, miraculous host and how they have been, ex- you know, uh, one or two of them have been examined and when they were examined, they they said they were heart tissue, and not only heart right. tissue, but uh, part of the heart uh, that pumps out the blood. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, and I have had the the blessing of, you know, even holding a miraculous host that had been examined like that. And to just think about, you know, when you're looking at Jesus in the host um, and thinking that, you know, this is his heart and it's a live heart. That's what the analysis said. This was a living heart. It wasn't a dead heart. Yeah. In fact, I've heard that there was, I I had um, uh, said this while you were explaining and I apologize, but that there are three elements of it. One, yes, it is tissue uh, from the heart. It is a bleeding heart in the case. A suffering heart. Yeah. And it is one that has experienced trauma. Yes. Which is the great trauma. Yeah. So yes. all of that is wrapped up into this analogy that Francis and I are trying to uh, sort of advance for Advent, Incarnation, mystical body, and now we're to the heart. But to keep this Carmelite spirituality focused, we want to bring back in St. Teresa Margaret of the Sacred Heart, uh, who we mentioned briefly. We've actually done a series on her, and I would encourage you to go listen uh, to that. I think it was a three-program series, if I'm not mistaken. Mm But um, we want to just draw a few excerpts from a book um, called God is Love. It's by an author named Margaret Rowe, who does a wonderful job uh, both giving us some biographical material on St. Teresa Margaret and also 
her devotion to the Sacred Heart and sort of where that stems from. And as I said, as I began to read that again, I saw the correlation between that and Elizabeth of the Trinity, St. Elizabeth of, of the Trinity's prayer that God, um, the, the Holy Spirit, would incarnate Christ within her. And of course, that's an Advent encounter for all of us, the model of which is the Blessed Mother. Now, many of you, I'm sure, will recall this conversation we've had uh, before and uh, just quickly as a biographical reminder, um, Saint Teresa Margaret Reddy of the Sacred Heart was born in Arezzo, Italy, 1747. She entered a Carmelite convent there in Florence at the very young age, actually of 17, 17 yeah, uh, and died at I think 22. Um, mm-hmm. And at that time and for many years thereafter, she was the youngest uh, saint in the church um, until. Um, uh, St. Teresa of the Andes. Um, and so... Well, sorry, sorry, it's the Carmelites. Car- Carmelites, I'm right, sorry. Yes, right. yes, yes. Um, and her entire spirituality, of course, was dedicated to this theme of a desire to return love for love. Oh, that yes. was her famous phrase, yes. to return love for love. I-, I can't do justice in the limited time that we have left to speak about her. Uh, but as I say, she did die at age 22. And here's what her own spiritual director said about her on this uh, very um, uh, youthful uh, passing. She could not have lived very much longer. So great was the strength of the love of God in her. In other words, Francis, (laughs) she she died died of love. love. (laughs) What a way to go. (laughs) (laughs) She died of love the way that um, um, uh, Therese of Lisieux did and the way that St. John of the Cross counseled us we should all die, Mm -hmm. right? We should die of love. And she might have had some other physical maladies, well, but yeah, the thing was that the, the the love was so yearning to be with love that it just burst forth, you know, um, and and the Lord just captured her in this great fervor. It was so beautiful. To, yeah, I, I don't want to go into the biographical sketch regarding her death again. It is in the uh, previous program we did, but, but I know you recall her death, her passing was very... Um, traumatic uh, Mm -hmm, for all of the sisters in the Carmel because it was very unexpected. She Mm -hmm. actually wasn't sick. It it wasn't as though she had been sick for a long period of time. She, she had an incident. Um, she was bedridden for a short time and all of a sudden in the night she passed and everybody was like, what happened? (laughs) She she was hidden, living that hidden life again. (laughs) But her spiritual director knew quite well that she simply died of love. Well, I want to do a little bit of background on her only as it relates to this theme. I want to tie this together. And these are frankly, in large part, um, either quotes from Margaret Rowe, the author of this book, or other sources. And so just again, to sort of set context here, Margaret Rowe points out that Teresa Margaret of the Sacred Heart was very much in advance of most of her contemporaries with regard to her conceptions of the Sacred Heart and its relation to the mystical body. Now, Pope Pius XI and Pius XII had authored papal documents on this theme, uh, and Margaret Rowe goes on, the mystery of the Sacred Heart is so inextricably entied, uh, entwined sorry, with the doctrine of the mystical body that neither can fully exist or be clearly comprehended, insofar as that is possible at all, apart from the other. In other words, this connection between uh, the mystical body and the understanding of the Sacred Heart. Yes, you, you can't just have a body. You've got to have a heart with it, right? 
Um, and the Holy Father, um, let's see, I'm not sure. Oh, yes, Pope John Paul, or Pope John the Twenty Third said, um, and this is from um, his encyclical, um, Hariatus Aquas. I probably mispronounced that, but that's the name of it. Um, he's quoting, actually. Uh, oh, from John Pope Pius XII, yeah. Yeah, he's, he stole this from Pius XII. Yeah, all right, now I'm getting it. I did the Latin in that, by the way, and my I, I can tell you my... my uh, um, Translation was not very good. It's it it, it is hard to say. So. Okay, well, this is what uh, Pope Pius this twelfth said. It is clear that in the heart of Jesus, we are dealing not with an ordinary form of piety, which anyone may, at his discretion, slight in favor of other devotions or esteem lightly, but with a duty of religion most conducive to Christian perfection. We could stop right That's there. huge. That's huge. <laughs> so he's saying this is, you know, a this is a duty of religion most conducive to Christian perfection. Wow. Yeah, so we have a Holy Father here who's written a document and his um, um the, the following pope, John the Twenty Third. I'm sorry, I'm not f- remembering the term, but um, he, his successor, there we go, um, found it so profound and impactful that he himself quotes it in his own writings, and, and the words that Francis reiterated. We want to we want to make sure to um, you know sort of footstomp this is that devotion to the Sacred Heart is conducive, most conducive to Christian perfection. Now. St. Teresa Margaret Reddy of the Sacred Heart, her own spiritual director, uh, Father Ildefonse, I I say that with a French translation, though I suspect he was probably Italian, Uh, but (laughs) he had something else to say about this. She regarded the Sacred Heart as the center of love whence the divine word has loved us from all eternity. She considered that this devotion was to love our Lord incessantly and return for his love. And she desired to have the sacred name, heart, excuse me, added to her name, understanding by that to be unwilling to live and breathe except by loving him with all of her strength. This is the signification which I find she gave to this devotion, making it consist completely in returning her love. Yeah, really, you could read that one brief paragraph, and it is the centerpiece, I will tell you, of this entire book. If you're looking at the life of uh, St. Teresa Margaret of the Sacred Heart, that is the theme, love for love. Everything she did, you could read the whole biographical sketch if you want to. All it does is reiterate that theme that Francis just read to us, that everything in her life centered around returning love for love. We could talk about her uh, caring for the elderly nuns in the um, in the infirmary uh, we could talk about her teaching the younger nuns we could talk about a whole bunch of uh, actions that she was involved in but most especially this idea of the sacred heart of returning love for love that was the central theme in her entire life as short a life as it was because in fairness she died of love well, the cult of the Sacred Heart, Pope Pius XII declared, and I quote, is a most excellent act of religion, since it involves on our part a total and unreserved intention of giving and consecrating ourselves to the Divine Redeemer's love, to which love his wounded heart is a living pointer and symbol. It is equally, if not more clear, 
that the principal idea of this cult or devotion is that we should our, ourselves make a return of love to the divine love. And from Isaiah 12, we have, you shall draw waters with joy out of the Savior's fountains. With these words, Pope Pius XII opened his encyclical in which he pointed out that the heart of Jesus, more than all the other members of his body, Okay, so we're spiking the sacred heart is the natural pointer to or symbol of his boundless charity towards mankind. So now we've heard about um, Pope Pius XII's perspective on this. We've heard uh, John XXIII validating the writings in Pope Pius XII. We've heard uh, Father Ildefonse, sacred uh, Saint uh, uh, Teresa Margaret uh, of the Sacred Heart's own reflection on her life and devotion to the Sacred Heart. Why don't we hear from her own words, Francis, on um, that page beginning here, where she speaks at length to this phrase once uh, having heard in the gospel, no one can come to the Father but by me. These words dramatically affected her, and she had a response to that. She said this, this our God and our loving Father is all. He's the beginning of everything, and this love is God himself. The mirror we have to consult to arrive at divine union is the sacred heart of Jesus crucified. With love, one must return love for love. And what can we do to make a return in kind to God who loves us so much in spite of our great unworthiness? And she poses the question I was posing, well, how can nothingness even the balance between itself and infinite plenitude? And here's how she answers it. We can do this much, endeavor to conform ourselves to Christ crucified and copy as nearly as possible the humility, meekness, and gentleness of his sacred heart. That's the mirror right there. Well, and just to conclude, we want to give um, three quick quotes that have to do both with uh, Pope Pius XI in this case, his own perspective on the reflection on uh, St. Teresa Margaret Reddy, the Sacred Heart's life and this devotion. He says, we do not hesitate to affirm that the cult of the Sacred Heart of Jesus is the most effective school of divine charity. This is the school that St. Teresa Margaret herself placed herself in. Now, in her word, she says, as a way of living this out, suffer and be silent for Jesus. Return him love for love. And quoting from scripture, learn of me, for I am meek and humble of heart. Christ humbled himself, obedient unto death, even to death on a cross. These texts became for her, St. Teresa Margaret Reddy of the Sacred Cross, uh, 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 Sacred Sacred Heart, Heart, sorry, her favorite subjects for meditation. She said, you must not allow yourself to become absorbed in external occupations by which you are obliged to perform. She counseled one of her sisters, by keeping the better part, that is the heart and mind, for God and yourself, you will converse exclusively and readily with God. You will begin to live in and for Jesus putting on little by little his mind, his spirit of submission, his simple and blind obedience to the Father's will, his humility, his love of meekness, and above all, his love, found in his sacred heart as part of the mystical body, which we experience in the incarnation in the season of Advent. In this Advent season, let's let's ponder, how are we preparing our hearts to receive his incarnation anew? Um, 
And so I have a short prayer to close this um, hour with. So let us get recollected, thinking of this heart of Jesus within each and every one of us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heart of Jesus, burning with love for me, inflame my heart with love for you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. We remind you, you've been listening to Carmelite Conversations on Radio Maria Christian Voice in your home. Until we're with you again next week, we wish you continued blessings through this Advent season. God bless.